If he were to pat you on the back, you would list it on your resume. Remember those Dos Equis commercials with the most interesting man in the world? If somehow you never saw them, they were pretty awesome. They usually featured these black and white montages with this dapper fellow depicting a series of daring exploits. Like rescuing angry bears and arm wrestling a huge guy, just to name two. And at the end of it, the most interesting man reminds us all to stay thirsty. Stay thirsty, my friend. He's a made-up character played by a guy named Jonathan Goldsmith, just to be clear. But the ad campaign kind of took a life of its own. It sold a lot of beer. Like, Dos Equis increased their sales by some 15% thanks to the campaign. And I always love those commercials. They were, of course, purposely outrageous because, as we all know, nobody could really do all that interesting stuff in just one lifetime. But then there's Bill Lee, a real-life person and left-handed pitcher in the major leagues a while back. He put marijuana on his pancakes. He was impervious to bus fumes, maybe. He once ran for president and later the governor of Vermont. At the age of 65, he signed a contract with an indie league team and famously threatened to bite an umpire's ear off during the World Series game. Well before the whole Mike Tyson event, mind you. He was an all-star in 1973, pitched in the 75 World Series, and won more than 100 games between 1969 and 82. In all, he played in the big leagues for 14 seasons, but is widely remembered for more than just his pitching. Sure, he's not a Hall of Famer, and yeah, lots of people hated him. Okay, and he had some pretty out-there beliefs. But none of that bothers me. In fact, I think I'm just going to rally behind it for this episode. I'm calling him the most interesting pitcher in the world. He's Bill Lee, Spaceman, and the subject of this episode of the Obscure Ball Podcast. But as usual, before we get started, I just want to point everyone to my website, smallleagstew.com. Small League Productions is a digital production service, mostly geared towards podcasters. Whether you're a brand trying to market your services, a creative person just looking for an outlet, or maybe you and some friends just want to collaborate on a fun side project. Whatever the case may be, podcasting is a really cool thing. Sometimes getting started, though, can be kind of tricky. But that's where I help out. I help with the whole publishing process. I help spruce up the podcast. I try to make it fun, and I craft it to you specifically. Also, if you have a podcast and you just want to spruce it up a bit, well, I do that too. So check me out, smallleagstude.com. The link's below. Shoot me a message if you think I can help out. Also, every time I listen to a podcast, I hear them say you should rate and subscribe. So do that for me too. Okay, now let's start the show. Billy has to be considered one of the top lefties in all of baseball. I have always been in favor of drug testing in sports, yes. Really? Yeah, I like to test them all. Give it a space man! So, turns out, I'm not the only person who thinks Bill Lee is super interesting. You just heard a bit of the trailer for the 2016 film Spaceman, a screenplay about Lee's life starring Josh Duhamel. Spaceman was his nickname, by the way, that was given to him by a teammate early on, and it kind of stuck. He was also the subject of the 2003 documentary Spaceman, a baseball odyssey. You know, it's kind of weird. Just watching a movie about Billy's life doesn't quite seem to do him justice, so a 20-minute podcast seems almost feeble. But I'm going to try anyway. The question is, where do I even begin? Well, I figured I'd piggyback off the film, so let's start at the end of his MLB career. It was 1982. Just four years earlier, Lee had been traded by the Red Sox to the Montreal Expos. 
The Sox had grown tired of his antics, so they shipped him up to Canada. Already on thin ice after admitting he liked weed, Lee was released from the Expos after staging a one-game walkout. His act of defiance was actually just meant to be a show of solidarity after the Expos released an infielder named Rodney Scott. Lee and Scott were pretty good pals, and Lee saw his protests as simply being a good teammate and friend. Expos management saw it differently. For one thing, Scott was a utility infielder hitting 200, and Lee was just a pain in the butt, to them anyway. For the Expos, that was it. The final straw after a career of stunts that earned him his iconoclastic reputation. They kicked him off the team. But Lee didn't seem to mind all that much. I'll never be out of baseball for good, he told a reporter. It's my life. Lee was totally right, by the way. Probably like a lot of big leaguers, his interest in baseball began at a young age. You could even say that he was simply joining the family business. Born in 1946 in Burbank, California, his grandfather played semi-pro ball, and his Aunt Annabelle played in the All-American Girls League in the 40s. You've seen a league of their own, right? Well, that was a real thing during World War II, and it was his aunt who taught him how to pitch. Without much of a fastball, Lee had to learn how to pitch with finesse and craftiness. And she taught him well. He was so good as a high schooler that he got a scholarship to USC. It was Southern California in the 60s, so his love of weed and counterculturalism kind of makes sense. In college, he helped the Trojans to a 1968 World Series. He was so good in college that he was drafted by the Boston Red Sox in 68. And he was so good in the minors that he was playing in the majors by 69. He spent his first few years as a reliever, but was added to the Sox rotation in 73. And it went well. In 33 starts, he had an ERA of 2.75 and picked up 17 wins. He was named to the American League All-Star team and led Boston to a second-place finish. Over the course of his playing career, he crafted a pitch known as the Ephus. This is an off-speed pitch meant to catch the hitter off-guard. Unlike other slow pitches such as the changeup, the Ephus has a high-arcing trajectory. It might look easy to hit, but when thrown well and often worked in with a series of high-speed pitches, it proved problematic for a lot of hitters. The Ephus has been used sparingly since the 19th century and derives its name from a Hebrew word meaning nothing, so a nothing pitch. As he did with everything else in life, he put his own spin on the pitch. He called it the Lephus, and he threw it pretty well. As his pitching regiment evolved, so did his career and his mind. The mid-1970s would be considered his prime. In 75, Lee and the loaded Red Sox won the American League pennant. While guys like Jim Rice and Carlton Fisk are the more heralded players of that team, Bill Lee was a huge part of their success too. He anchored the rotation with 17 wins and an ERA under 4. In the World Series, he was given the nod in Games 2 and 7 against the Cincinnati Reds. Boston lost both games, but none of that's really on Lee. He pitched well. So call it bad luck, the curse of the Bambino, poor management, or just some mix of the three, things didn't work out. Game 2, for instance. Lee goes 8 innings, giving up just one run. The Reds scored twice in the ninth and won 3-2. Game 7. The series is tied at 3 games apiece. That means winner take all. Lee gives Boston 6 solid innings. Things were going along just nicely when he gave up a mammoth blast to Tony Perez, when he threw him his famous Leafus pitch. There's his blooper pitch. There it is. A high drive. He's waiting for that one. That one is. He'd gotten Perez out everything. twice on the pitch, Perez but perhaps got a little too cute and tried a third time. As Lee put it, that ball still hasn't landed. But otherwise, he did fine. He left the game with the lead. 
Then, the Big Red Machine did their thing and manufactured a run in the 7th and ninth innings each, taking the game 4-3. Game over, series over. The Spaceman was a good player, no doubt. But as I've been alluding to, he became known for being something of an iconoclast. A guy who just spoke his mind no matter what the consequences. He once told the press he sprinkled marijuana on his pancakes. He claimed this made him impervious to bus fumes when he jogged to the park. When asked about mandatory drug testing, he sarcastically said he loved testing drugs but didn't think it should be mandatory. He was never shy of sharing his unique worldview. As any baseball fan knows, baseball isn't a sport that prizes any sense of individualism. It's a sport deeply rooted in tradition. Playing the game the right way, and I use air quotes there that you can't see, and a strict reverence to unwritten and frankly arbitrary rules are valued almost as much as talent. That's true now, and it was especially true back in the 70s. Towards the end of his time in Boston, Lee played for Don Zimmer, a staunch proponent for old school style of play. Where Lee was a product of 1960s California, the sexual revolution, weed, and all the trimmings, Zimmer was pretty much a 180. He was old school and expected his players to adhere to that mindset. So naturally, the two clashed, and to make matters worse, the years after the 75 World Series weren't great. May 20th, 1976. The Red Sox were off to a poor start on the year, and manager Daryl Johnson would be fired midseason. Zimmer would take over for him, the Red Sox would miss the playoffs, and as I said, Zimmer and Lee butted heads. But it was this game on May 20th that things really began to unravel. Johnson still had his job. Zimmer was a third base coach, and Lee got the start against the New York Yankees. At that point, he wasn't having a great season, but he did pretty well that game. Six innings pitched, and just one run on seven hits. Boston would score eight runs over the final three innings and win the game 8-2. But the 27th out was a pretty dramatic one. It was a play at the plate. Yankees DH Lou Pinella slides in, spikes up, straight up Boston catcher Carlton Fisk. Kind of unnecessary and really uncool. At least Fisk thought so. This set off a bench-clearing brawl. Now, baseball brawls tend to fall into one of two categories. One category is there's a minor dispute between two players, everyone runs out onto the field and then decides not to fight. Diplomacy wins out and fans are left disappointed. We want blood sport after all. The other is someone does something like slide into home plate with their spikes up, and the bench is clear for an all-out war. This brawl fell into the second category. Add the whole Yankees and Red Sox rivalry into the fold, and it's on like Donkey Kong. This is one of baseball's most epic brawls. It's not just about the slide at this point. These teams loathe one another. They'd fought before. Namely in 73 when Fisk and Thurman Munson had some beef. After that game, we said the Yankees were like a bunch of hookers swinging their purses, which is a very specific and unique insult. Unsurprisingly, Spaceman finds himself in the middle of this brawl. He charges into the melee only to get epically body slammed by Yankees third baseman Greg Nettles. Lee gets up, his left arm now feeling numb. Enraged that his throwing arm was damaged or maybe just letting adrenaline take over, Lee charged his attacker, screaming obscenities. But with his left arm out of commission, he's at a disadvantage. He only has one arm to fight with. 
Nettles has both of his arms and responded with a punch to the face that left Lee with a black eye. Even worse, he tore a ligament in his shoulder and missed two months of baseball. By the time he got back, Zimmer was managing the team, and Lee spent most of his time coming out of the bullpen. His final two seasons in Boston were filled with drama and a very public falling out with his manager. Zimmer was there to lay down the law. Lee was there to break it, or at least redefine it. Lee even briefly left the team for a few days, deepening the rift. The thing is, many people are strongly of the opinion that Zimmer wasn't managing the team well, particularly the pitching staff. Lee was among those detractors. He and another group of pitchers formed a group called the Buffalo Heads, which would also be a really cool name for a band. He also referred to Zimmer as a gerbil, or I think he said he looked like a gerbil. I mean, no one likes to be called a gerbil, and even hard-nosed guys like Zimmer have feelings too. By the end of 78, Lee had been banished to the bullpen, and the season ended when the Red Sox lost a one-game playoff to the Yankees, who won the division, the pennant, and the World Series. Lee never pitched in that final game. So that's how his time in Boston ended, watching from the bullpen as his team lost to their hated rivals. He was traded to Montreal during the offseason, and while having a stellar 1979 season, his talent was overshadowed by dumb controversies. Remember all that stuff I said about weed earlier? When he told the media he liked weed, he was featured on the cover of High Times, a magazine that pushes for pot to be legalized. Again, for a sport that likes to cultivate a polished image, this wasn't a great look from MLB's perspective. And it kind of struck a nerve with the league commissioner, who brought Lee in to dress him down, kind of like a school kid being sent to the principal's office. That's when he came up with the excuse of not smoking it, but sprinkling it on his pancakes. Hey, maybe it wasn't even an excuse, maybe that's really what he did. I mean, from what I've heard, edibles are pretty popular, so it's not that crazy. And just like in Boston, he clashed with management. As we've established, he was released from the Expos after he mounted a one-man insurrection in 1982. But Lee didn't need baseball to cause a ruckus. From here, there's probably several different threads we could follow. His many years of playing indie league ball are fascinating to be sure. He played in the short-lived senior league. He played in Venezuela. He played in New Brunswick. And as recently as 2018, he played in an exhibition game for the Ottawa Senators as part of their Expos Day. The press release for the event referred to him as a fan favorite. So I guess he made peace with the team? Well, maybe the fans anyway. They always seemed to like him more than the management ever did. And that's the thing about Spaceman. He's always been a guy of the people. Maybe that influenced his venture into politics, as unserious as it might have been. By 1987, he was of course out of the majors, relegated to playing indie league ball for a fraction of what he was making as a big leaguer. He'd written the first of four books called The Wrong Stuff. It was about his life to that point, which was probably fascinating, and there was a presidential election coming up. So he figured he'd throw his hat into the ring. Of course, most people didn't vote for him. Most people probably had no idea he was running for president. It was between the first George Bush and Michael Dukakis. And without getting into their whole thing, let's just say Lee had a very different approach to running for president. First of all, it was mostly a joke. He was on the Rhinoceros Party's ticket. Now, this is significant in two ways. One, the Rhinoceros Party is purely satirical. 
Case in point, they plan to promote higher education by building taller school buildings, tear down the Rocky Mountains so more people can see the Pacific sunset, and tax the black market. In other words, it was a great political party for Bill Lee. And two, it's a party based out of Canada, so that part's just kind of confusing. But that's probably why he did it. It was weird, random, zany, out of left field. I mean, it was Bill Lee. However, while his run at the presidency in 1988 might have been in jest, it also put his unique worldview front and center. In an interview with the Sun Sentinel, he claimed that the universe comes first, the solar system second, Earth third, and people on Earth rock bottom. He went on to say, We can't think of ego first and have peace. The whole foundation of our planet is based on the falsehood that the individual comes first. The planet comes first. So, kind of an environmentalist? He also stated that he'd do away with a designated hitter, reinstate himself onto a big league team, and no more artificial turf. Just plain old grass. Just like nature intended it. Actually, some baseball fans might like him. Maybe as commissioner or something like that. He'd also repeal the law of gravity, convert everything to solar power, and do away with borders. Every time you stop, they check your trunk, he told a crowd in Cambridge. Another slogan? No guns, no butter. They'll both kill you. George Bush won the 88 election after Michael Dukakis took a joyride on a tank, and then Lee went about just playing indie league ball, sprinkling pot on his buckwheat pancakes, and theorizing about all kinds of things. Then in 2016, he jumped back into politics, Maybe it was just the year celebrities decided to run or something, but Lee set his sights on the governorship in Vermont. Like a lot of things in his life, this was just one of those things that happened. He was contacted by the Liberty Union Party, a party he and probably most of us had never heard of before. They wanted him to be their guy, and he said yes. He got more than 8,000 votes, or roughly 2.7% of the vote, which wasn't quite enough to win. To this day, he still lives on a farm in Vermont, appears weekly on a morning radio show, and quite possibly, still puts weed in his pancakes. Hey, you gotta watch out for those bus fumes, right? The more I think about it, Bill Lee is a really hard guy to figure out. He's all about the counterculture, and yet, a baseball purist at the same time. After all, this was a guy who if he was president or king of the world or whatever, he'd abolish the DH, get rid of polyester uniforms, and there'd be no doubleheaders on Sunday. His politics sometimes are offbeat. He spoke in favor of China's population control, which is questionable. Yet, he was also in favor of desegregating public schools, which is a pretty cool thing for him to do in my opinion. He was a fiercely loyal teammate and a devout student of the game, while often rebelling against the powers that be. You could almost say his story is a sad one. He never won a World Series, was effectively booted off two teams, and statistically, never quite lived up to his potential. Oh yeah, and he never got to be president or governor either. But I don't think his story is a sad story. I think it's actually pretty rad. Some people spend significant parts of their lives trying to be the person everyone wants them to be. Like everyone in high school went through that phase where they tried to be really cool. I don't think Bill Lee ever had one of those. I think he skipped it all. He did what he wanted to do. Playing baseball, inspiring others, and speaking his mind. In 2008, he was inducted into the Red Sox Hall of Fame, still holding the record for the most games pitched by a left-hander with 321. 
To this day, he still makes public appearances, and people still love him. And I think that's a good enough legacy for the Spaceman. I don't actually know that for a fact, but I hope it is. I couldn't get him for the podcast because I have no idea how to get in touch with him. I don't know how to do that. So that brings us to the end of this episode. Seems like a weird and abrupt way to end it. Which, given the subject matter, is probably pretty appropriate.